Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, March 4th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, health and municipal leaders respond to the governor's decision to roll back coronavirus mitigation efforts. And restoration of water in the capital city takes a step backwards. Then a teacher pay raise is hanging by a thread in the state legislature. We hear from one professional education group. Plus, in our book club, The Life and Legacy of B.B. King. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians are no longer under executive order to wear masks in public or limit the size of social gatherings. Governor Tate Reeves removed those restrictions in a new executive order that went into effect yesterday evening. Reeves claims the state's improved vaccination rates will be enough to help alleviate strain on the state's hospital systems. But only 14 percent of Mississippians have received their first dose of a vaccine. Leaders in health care worry the decision to open the state up might be coming too early. Dr. Luann Woodward, Vice Chancellor of the University of Mississippi Medical Center, shares more with our Kobe Vance. Our hospital continues to be full. It feels like the um, repeat of just the same thing I've said over and over and over now for a while. Um, The hospital continues to be full. The numbers of the COVID patients that we're taking care of, we're seeing that pretty steadily decline. Um, So that's good news. But, But I guess also in the good news category is that there are a lot of other patients that need to be taken care of as well. So so we're still full. And I wanted to ask, you know, yesterday the governor decided to roll back on a lot of mandates around mm-hmm. coronavirus restrictions. Um, restaurants, bars, masks is the biggest one, that, uh, mm-hmm. obviously. I was curious, um, as we begin to see these declines and uh, the hospitals are beginning to have some relief and getting mm-hmm. back to normal, at least, quote unquote normal, <laughs> yeah. um, is, is now the right time, do you feel? So, you know, you feel like I feel like we're on the 10-yard line. We have figured out some plays that work. We, have, we know that social distancing, we know that wearing a mask is helping. We're seeing the numbers going in the right direction. 
whether it's the numbers of new cases or, or the ability that we're having to get more people vaccinated. So there's this sense, like you said, almost of relief, if that's the right word, or a feeling that you can see the end point, that, you're, that we see what's working. Um, but I feel like we're on the 10-yard line. We're not across the finish line yet. We're still, we've still got some work to be done. So before the day ended yesterday, just to be sure that everybody here on the campus understood, we put out an internal memo that on this campus that we are still, you know, requiring masks. Um, we're in a healthcare setting. We're following the recommendation. And also, I feel like anybody that's in a crowded situation, that's in a, um, an event where there's a large number of people, or any individual with health care challenges should really still consider wearing a mask in those situations just for their own protection. Now, the governor's plan currently, he said that he wants to focus more on vaccinations. Do you feel like right now vaccinations are going to be a good substitute for mitigation efforts like, you know, limiting restaurant capacity and requiring masks in many counties? So I don't think any of these items really substitute one for the other. I think they're all part of the solution, getting more people vaccinated. He's been a great proponent of that and very, um, very proactive in that space, and, and that is widely appreciated. That's clearly just the, the best thing that we can do is get more people vaccinated. Um, I know that he feels a lot of pressures from the business community and others to get things more back to normal. Um, I have the luxury of speaking only from the standpoint of healthcare and science and saying, you know, from the standpoint of healthcare, we need to be careful, we need to wear a mask. Um, so I don't think that anything substitutes for the other. I think all of the pieces are what really pulls it together. We just don't want to see the numbers going in the wrong direction. And that's going to take all of us kind of kind of looking toward the same end and making smart decisions in our day-to-day lives. Dr. Woodward, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. While mandates from the governor are being removed, several cities and counties across the state will remain under local mask mandates. Starkville Mayor Lynn Spurrow supports the removal of some restrictions on businesses, but says the city will still work with Mississippi State University and county leaders to keep residents safe. We have always had that mask requirement as an underlying feature, and we um, discussed it, and the board voted to retain it. So the mask requirement is in place. All the other restrictions that were part of the governor's executive orders have been lifted. But other than that, um, there are no other restrictions. What was the Starkville's reasoning behind continuing the mask mandate? And also you mentioned earlier that Starkville issued one even before the governor issued his orders. Uh, well, the reason was because of the pandemic. I mean, it was very clear that all the medical personnel, the CDC, Dr. Fauci, both nationally and locally, were uh, re- recommending that we do this. And so we instituted the mask requirement, and it has been on for this period of time. It, and again, it remains on. But the reason to keep it is because um, the vaccination level has not reached a point where um, I believe it is needs to be for us to remove it in its entirety. So um, the and Mississippi State is continuing to have theirs, as far as I know. And I think uh, for us to act in concert is uh, a reasonable and rational thing for us to do. And I'm inclined to think that uh, you know once the semester is over and we have a break point there that makes sense, 
another couple of months means most people will have probably gotten a vaccine who are going to get it, and that we'll be free to rock and roll. Uh, students at Mississippi State are from all over the state, as well as some from all over the country and some all, all over the world. I was curious, are you concerned about uh, people going back home for things like spring break or weekends uh, and then uh, where mass mandates might not be continued and then coming back to Starkville and possibly leading to more transmission? Well, that is certainly a concern, and that would be another reason for us to keep our mask mandate in place for when students return from wherever it is they go for spring break, and they come back, and, and we find ourselves in a position to be able to at least have a little bit of um, safety level that might not have existed if we had lifted that mask mandate. Do you think that because the governor has taken his uh, his countywide mandates down, do you think it's going to be harder to inf- uh, to get people to participate? I certainly hope not. I think we've gotten used to doing it. So I think those who have in the past been willing to adhere to the requirements are going to continue to do that. And those who have had difficulty with it for whatever reason, um, I think they'll continue to probably have difficulties. I am certainly hopeful that everyone will uh, understand that we haven't gotten out of the woods yet. I think the national medical experts, the state medical experts and certainly a number of the local medical experts still believe that um, wearing masks is the appropriate thing to do and is a minimal um, and invasive approach to try to keep people safe until we can get more people vaccinated. So I certainly hope that people will comply with that and, and we'll be out of this uh, before the summer gets here. Lynn Spruill is mayor of the city of Starkville, Mississippi. Mayor, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for calling. Health experts are urging residents who qualify to get the coronavirus vaccine. There are many appointments available on the Department of Health's website. From one health concern to another, Mississippi's capital city is still struggling with water problems more than two weeks after winter storms and freezing weather ravaged the system in Jackson. City officials are now trying to overcome another setback in their efforts to restore water to all residents. Yesterday, Public Works Director Charles Williams said debris clogged screens where water moves from a reservoir into a treatment plant that caused pressure to drop for the entire water system. We made some very good gains this week, so it's very disappointing to see uh, the screens go down today, but that's part of the process, and I think that also portrays an issue that's been going on for a while when we talk about our water infrastructure and how it's aging and how a lot of our water distribution lines need to be replaced and upgrades that need to be at the plant. I am encouraged by the dialogue that is uh, being conducted right now amongst uh, the state and uh, hopefully the federal and, and local governments about how to assist Jackson. So I hope that the momentum continues with that because we really need the available resources that in order for us to improve our infrastructure. So as long as that discussion is being held and we're able to sit at the table and make these requests of what is needed, you know, hopefully that we can minimize this, these uh, events that are occurring uh, in the future. Williams says about a fourth of Jackson's customers remain without running water. That's more than 10,000 connections with most serving multiple people. Coming up, a teacher pay raise is hanging by a thread in the state legislature. We hear from one professional education group. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. 
find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. A long-promised teacher pay raise is still alive in the Mississippi legislature after members in the Senate pushed out a clean, standalone bill in the waning hours of Tuesday's deadline day. The Senate's original bill that included a $1,000 raise died in the House. The politicking has some education advocates concerned over the future of teacher pay raises in a state far below the southeastern average. Kelly Riley is executive director of Mississippi Professional Educators. She tells our Michael Guidry, Teachers are saddened to see the issue handled in this manner. It's disappointing that an an issue that is so important to the future of education in Mississippi. It's it's sad to see that um, the Mississippi House appears to be fighting it so much. Um, We certainly appreciate the support and the leadership that the Senate has has proven as and provided. So, you know, it's politics. I mean, everything in the Capitol is politics, but I don't think our teachers, particularly um, after the past 12 months that they have worked so diligently and gone above and beyond to provide for their students, um, you know, it's, it's sad to see them treated in this manner. What is, what is the state of teaching in Mississippi as the legislature tries to find a solution to start bridging the gap when it comes to teacher uh, pay, teacher salary, teacher recruitment, and teacher retention? Well, of course, um, unfortunately, the, the pipeline into the teaching profession has been drying up over the course of the past few years. We don't have as many students entering our education preparation programs as we have in the past. Likewise, um, although we did not see as many teachers as we anticipated retiring after last year and the challenges of schools going virtual and shutting down and you know distance learning and packets and all of the challenges that that educators faced um, in light of covid um, you know our our retirement eligible teachers that pool is growing. And so our our supply is not meeting our demand. And, of course, you know, a competitive salary plays into that. We, we particularly have to be competitive with our surrounding states. And past those states, we have to be competitive with the southeastern average. And it's not only a matter of recruiting new teachers into the profession, but it's retaining those teachers that are already in classrooms throughout the state. Um, Mississippi's average salary is about $3,300 less or, or lower than the southeastern average. That gap widens when you look at the average overall teacher salaries by state. And um, in that category, we actually fall about $8,200 below the southeastern average. And so, you know, when a teacher can move across the state line and make a significant amount more to provide for his or her family, it makes it a, a harder challenge that we as a state face in trying to retain those teachers. The Senate's original bill for the $1,000 raise and the raising of the floor for beginning teachers, that, that did not make it out of the House Committee. The Senate was able to clean up the House's teacher pay plan and uh, offer it up as a single, a standalone bill. 
What do you make of, of what is actually still alive, uh, what it offers Mississippi teachers, and the adequacy of it? Well, certainly a $1,000 pay raise, which is what most of our teachers would receive under this pay raise proposal. It's not enough to make us competitive, but it is a, it is a start and it is a step in the right direction. Do our teachers need more? Do we as a state need to compensate them more? We have so many teachers that are working not only as a teacher, but working um two, three, even four jobs to try to earn a basic living for and provide for their families. Um, so, you know, $1,000 is not the, the golden key, but it is a step in the right direction. It is going to take um, more than just a one-year shot in the arm. We really need to work as a state and map out a multi-year plan and strategy so that we can address this issue in an educated and concerted manner so to have um, the most effective results. But, you know, $1,000 dollars is certainly our teachers deserve more than that, but it is a step in the right direction. I'd like to talk a little bit about that $1,000 raise in, in this bill. It is the only thing um, that is out there right now. There is no graduated plan. You said $1,000 is a step in the right direction. It's certainly not much. Um, I'd like to contextualize that because this year, the state insurance provider uh, raised premiums and also raise deductibles. So uh, within the context of a $1,000 raise, teachers who fall under that plan, many of them use that plan, they're seeing some of that money already go out of the window. Uh, what is needed to be able to kind of keep track with the rising costs of health care, the rising costs of everything else, when uh, it seems like teachers' salaries have not, not risen with the rate of inflation and the rate of cost of living? Well, and that's a very valid concern, and that is um, what you just described mirrors the complaints or concerns that I hear from our members. There's a general sentiment, well, if we get a pay raise, they're just going to take it with an increase in our health insurance premium. Um, and, and that is you know, a valid concern, and, and we've got to implement a plan that will pass and provide a substantial pay raise so that we're not, um, you know, giving them money in one pocket and taking it out the other pocket. I mean, it's got to be a significant, substantial pay raise that they will see and feel the difference in their their livelihoods and in their families' lives. Uh, Ms. Riley, is there anything about what's happening in the legislature related to the pay raise or any other educational issue that I haven't asked you about that you feel is important to articulate? I would just say, you know, again, that we appreciate the Senate's efforts yesterday to keep a standalone, clean pay raise bill alive. Um, you know, they they demonstrated leadership by putting pride aside and keeping a House bill alive. We don't feel like it should be used as a political move um, maneuver in the House leadership's income tax bill. That is why we were so excited um, to see that it you know, that the Senate did pass the clean standalone pay raise bill yesterday because an issue as significant as our our teachers and their compensation um, deserves to be a standalone bill within the legislative process. Kelly Riley, Executive Director of Mississippi Professional Educators, thank you for your time and for your perspective.
Thank you. Coming up in our book club, The Life and Legacy of B.B. King. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's the first of its kind, a virtual StoryCorps mobile tour. For years, StoryCorps brought loved ones face-to-face for interviews about the things that matter most. Now, StoryCorps is bringing people together in a whole new way. Record an interview remotely and make it a part of American history at the Library of Congress. Appointments now open at StoryCorps.org. StoryCorps is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi icon B.B. King spent his life playing the blues and introducing other musicians to the genre he embraced. Author Diane Williams shares the story of King's humble beginnings, along with a series of interviews with bandmates and family in The Life and Legacy of B.B. King. He was born in 1925. The Mississippi Great Flood of 1927, the Great Depression. He was a a little toddler doing those hard, hard times. And the Delta blacks were working out as, as sharecroppers in the fields and those kinds of things. So life was really, really very hard for him. His mother had diabetes and she died young. He lived with his mother and grandmother after his parents separated and divorced. So when his mother died, went blind, died at a young age, and he stayed with his grandmother, she died not long after that. And B.B. King lived by himself for a little while. And did you know all of his life he was afraid of the dark and carried a flashlight with him all the way through his life because he was just that afraid. How old was he when he was living by himself? Between 9, 10, 11 years old somewhere in that area, just a young boy, but he was on a plantation where his grandmother had worked, and he continued working. He was allowed to stay in her house. She had a debt. It wasn't a large debt, but back then it was. He paid off most of his grandmother's debt because sharecropping, you made a little money, but then you owed to the store. You owed to the man that owned the property for the goods and services that you needed. That's why they had that debt. It was a hard life, a really, really hard life for him. But I found so much integrity in his, you know, to pay off that debt as a young boy. Later on, as an older teenager, he ran the plantation owner's tractor into a barn. And then he got scared. He ran away. And that's when he first went to Memphis the first time. When he came back, he paid that debt. And, And those are the kinds of things I want people to know about him. He really was a man of integrity. He was a man that cared to do the right thing. He cared about people. He wanted people to know about the blues. He wasn't out there just trying to make money. He wanted them to understand this journey of blues music. How did someone with such a tough background discover his own talent? I look at him as a little boy looking at soundies. Soundies were these, you put your coin in and you can look and you can see famous musicians, people like Count Basie. He saw how nicely they were dressed, how they performed. That impressed him. And then he also listened to the music on the Victrolas. 
and he heard people like Blind Lemon Johnson and different older, older musicians just before his time. And those people impressed him. Back then, blacks would dress up in suits and they would carry themselves very well. And he wanted to be like that. He wanted to dress up in suits and he did all of his life. You said that he was a man of integrity and you want people to know that. What else Mm -hmm. do you want people to know about B.B. King? I really want people to know how he encouraged other musicians, even if they weren't great musicians, even if they had a bad day and he was around and he saw that he offered words of encouragement. There is an element in this book, you know, I'm probably one of the first female and black women writers of a B.B. King book. And for me, I think this book is important to the African-American people because it encourages us. It helps us see someone that came through, you know, the Jim Crow, the you know, the, the Reconstruction came through or, or, or was affected by those things, came through civil rights era and didn't let that stop him, didn't let that be his focal point, did not let those hardships of the times stop him from doing what was deeply rooted in his soul. And I know B.B. King sailed over a lot of that because he was so good that, you know, some of the best recording companies snatched him up. But he still was affected by those things. And traveling, I want people to know, you know, hang in there, keep doing what you're doing, and there's a way. You know, when musicians couldn't travel the main highways, black musicians, they had to travel the back roads, they had to stay in people's homes, and they couldn't stay in five-star hotels. B.B. King, he struggled through that. He was brave. He kept persevering, even when he couldn't get gas or use the bathroom along the way. He's a role model for us. Diane Williams is the author of The Life and Legacy of B.B. King. Diane, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.